All right, turn to the book of Philemon. Philemon is an amazing little letter in the New Testament. It's just one chapter. Probably in most of your Bibles, just one page. Why did God give us the book of Philemon? Why did God canonize it and record it for the church? How does it help us? And so today I want to try to answer this question um, because really this little letter is a gem for us. Um, Some background quickly. We will read verses 11 and 15 through 19. Um, But what you'll see is it revolves around this runaway slave who is converted. So let's read verse 11. The slave's name, as it will come out, is Onesimus. And it says about Onesimus, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. And then jump to 15. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, Charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. So those are our verses. Um, But the background here, this runaway slave Onesimus, um, Paul is writing a letter. And Paul is in prison, we learn in verse 1, probably in Rome. Uh, Philemon is the recipient, and he has house church. We don't know a lot about Philemon, but possibly he was a part of the church in Coloss, uh, which is where we get the letter to the Colossians. The letter is a very positive letter. Um, It's not so much addressing problems like Galatians or Corinthians or some of the other letters where Paul has his main purpose for writing is to give truth and to correct error, and you you can hear a lot of Paul's turmoil. This is very positive. Uh, It's kind of like Philippians or Thessalonians, that when you read it, there's just a lot of warmth that comes out. And you even read especially warm things like Paul saying, uh, refresh my heart, and he says, Paul the aged, or Paul an old man, prepare a guest room for me, And uh, you even have this play on words in this book where in verse 11, he says, formerly he was useless to you. Well, the name Onesimus means useful. And he says, formerly he was useless, but now he is indeed useful. Now he really, that he's a Christian, he really lives up to his name. So there's kind of this warm tone throughout his letter. Um, But what it revolves around, and the main purpose for him writing is, that somehow Paul had run into Onesimus, who was not a Christian, after he had run away from his master, 
Paul was in prison and Onesimus was converted, which is kind of an amazing story. We don't really know the details of how it happened, but it is kind of uh, interesting to, to speculate and think about how would Onesimus have met Paul? Did he get caught? Was he put in prison too as a runaway slave? Um, did he have a heavy conscience and he sought out Christians and they brought him to Paul? Was it a chance meeting somehow that he went to the wrong door or went to the wrong place? And we don't know. And we don't know how long it took for him to become a Christian. Might have been slow. It might have been quick. But somehow Paul was instrumental in his coming to the Lord. We see that in verse 10. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. And Paul speaks this way sometimes, that I became your father in the gospel. And so now, Onesimus has changed. He's become a Christian. Uh, we, we, we don't know the story, but we know if he were to go back to Philemon, he would be able to tell the whole tale of how it happened to Philemon. So Paul doesn't put that in the letter. He leaves out a lot of those details. But what he does say in the letter is really good for us and really helps us. Uh, what is recorded is something that is a part of Scripture because um, of its, its significance and its meaning. And I think really what it boils down to is it is a portrayal of the gospel. It's a demonstration of the heart of Christianity. And that's why God included it as part of the scripture for us. It's amazing to think about that God put in the New Testament a little letter about a runaway slave being restored to his master. That is so bizarre. But the reason why, one reason why, I think, is because the way Paul deals with Onesimus is so gracious, it so perfectly pictures the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is living it out in the way that he treats Onesimus. And so that's what we want to focus on. What do you do? What does Paul do with Onesimus? Um, he knows that technically as a slave, he still belongs to his master, to Philemon, who's a Christian. So he decides to send him back first. That would be proper. That would be right. Um, not to keep him with him, even though he could probably be of help to Paul. Um, but the way he does it pictures our relationship with Jesus Christ. Onesimus is like us, and Paul is like the Lord. First, we see uh, what Onesimus used to be, and this was like our state when we were lost. Look in verse 11, it says he was useless. So we're going to look at a few things that he was, and we're going to look at things that he is now. First of all, he was useless. That's rather blunt, and particularly as a slave, that's probably the last thing you would want ascribed to you if you're a servant. It's like, well, that guy is useless. Um, but it's in Scripture, so we know, you know, there's some truth behind it. Was he lazy? Was he spiritually defiant? 
We don't really know why he would be called useless, um, but we do know since he was not a believer, at the very least, um, he was not receiving spiritual truth and was not walking with the Lord, even if he was doing his service. There's a lot of things we don't know about Onesimus, but really this is true of every person before they come to Christ, that living in sin and being lost in sin makes you useless to the Lord. Um, Think about Onesimus. He served a Christian master, and not just a Christian man, but a Christian man who had a house church. So there would have been Christians all around this guy, and yet he kept his distance and he remained uh, in his sin. Well, that's what we did when we were lost. Um, Paul in Romans 7 says, and I think he's talking about his lost state prior to being set free from sin. He says, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That's what the scripture says, that if you're lost, there's nothing good in you. Everything is affected by sin. Even the good things you want to do and the good things you try to do are still come out all messed up because of sin. Um, Jeremiah 13, the Lord tells Jeremiah, take this sash, this nice, you know, beautiful sash and hide it down by the Euphrates River. Hide it in the cleft of the rock and come back after many days. So he comes back and he pulls the sash out from this hiding place. I don't know if it was underwater or just in the mud or where it was. But he pulls it out and he says it was totally spoiled, totally useless, good for nothing. It was just nasty. You wouldn't use it to tie things with. It's probably all coming apart. Um, And he says, the house of Israel is like this to me. They're good for nothing. When you're in sin, your life is serving no good purpose. And... Scripture also says our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. They're like that sash. Even the good things, even our charity, even our prayers, before we come to the Lord and make peace with the Lord, even those things are tainted by sin and selfishness. So Onesimus is like us. Also, verse 16, he was a slave says, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave is a beloved brother. Onesimus was a slave. And scripture says what? It says that we were slaves of sin before Christ set us free. John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is the slave of sin. So it's not just that being lost, you sin sometimes. It's that invisibly there is a a master reigning over the lost, sin. And because if someone doesn't have Christ, it means the strong man, that is the devil, he rules over them. He is stronger than they are. They can't escape him because he's stronger. Onesimus was a slave. And we start out in life as slaves of sin. Sin is stronger than us, filling our minds with sinful thoughts, anger, selfishness, hurtful words, lies. 
And even if you try to stop sinning, you can't. Even if one area you try to get control, sin will just pop up in a different area. It's like you can't get it out of your life. Um, I remember in Bangladesh, uh, in the apartment I lived in, in my kitchen, there were always ants. And so I had to keep everything in glass jars. All my food, all my cookies, all of everything, I had to keep it in you know, airtight jars. And I, I asked the locals, I said, you know, how do I get rid of these ants? And they said, well, there's this chalk. It's like this poison chalk. You just rub that over the hole where the ants are coming out, and then they'll die and they'll stop coming out of there. So I rubbed it on this hole, and then suddenly they come out of a different hole in the wall. So I go and rub it on that hole, and it's like there's no end to the ants or the holes in my apartment. Um, and I realize I'm not getting anywhere with this chalk. It's just a temporary measure, but really the ants had the upper hand. Well, sin is like that. Um, even if you're able to reform your life in one area, there's no one who can keep sin out of their life if they're not a Christian. Uh, sin has the upper hand. And then the last thing about his past is he was running. He ran away. Now, I don't actually have a verse for this, um, but it's implied in the letter in him being returned to his master. And the closest we get to Paul mentioning him running away is in verse 15. But look at how gently Paul puts it. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. That he was parted from you. It almost makes it sound like an accident, you know? He's so gracious and not saying he ran away, but we know that's what happened. I mean... It's not like Onesimus was, you know, just kind of got confused. He was out in the field one day, and he looked around, and he thought, where am I? And he couldn't find his way back to his master's house. He ran. And Scripture, we don't really have time to go into this, but Scripture has many examples showing that the lost are running from the Lord. They're hiding from the Lord. They're trying to stay away at a distance. That's what we were all doing. Maybe you can remember in your own testimony a time in your life when you were around Christians like Onesimus. You were around the truth, but you didn't want it, and you were trying your best to keep your distance, to not have the light shine on you. But then grace intervened, and Paul found Onesimus, or Onesimus found Paul, and he becomes a Christian, and look at how, look at, look at Onesimus now. Look at his standing now. Uh, verse 18, he's being sent back to his master, and Paul says, if he has wronged you at all, anything morally wrong, or owes you anything, any money he owes you, charge that to my account. So Paul is taking his debts and saying, whatever this slave owes, I am going to take it. Put that debt on my account. And this is exactly what Christ does in the gospel. Paul is imitating Jesus Christ. Jesus takes, he took our sin to his account. Uh, Matthew 20, 28. The son of man 
came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus gave his life as a ransom, as a price to set us free. Christ on the cross became a ransom to set us free from our sins and our debt. First uh, Peter 2.24, you can turn to this. This verse is so good in getting to the heart of the gospel. First Peter 2.24. He himself, that is Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He himself bore, that is carried, took the weight of, took responsibility, took our sins upon himself on the tree, on the cross. Jesus was taking our sins upon himself on the cross that we would live. He was charging our sins to his account. Or Isaiah 53, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, just like Onesimus, running away. We've all gone astray, and the Lord, what? Has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Even though we were all going astray, we were going this way, Christ stood there, and the Father laid, took our sins and laid our iniquities on him, the iniquities of us all. It was charged to his account. This is the doctrine of imputation. It's the transfer of our sin onto Christ. Um, I like what R.C. Sproul said one time. He was trying to explain how nowadays there's so many uh, false, there's so much false Christianity and so much redefining of Christianity and what words mean. He was running out of good terms to use for himself as a Christian. It's hard for him just to say, I'm a Christian, hard to say I'm an evangelical, hard to say I'm this or that, because people have got it so mixed up. And then finally he said, I'm an imputationalist. Because <laughs> that's really the heart of the gospel, is that our sins were laid upon Christ. They were imputed to him. It's as if Jesus went to the cross and said, Father, they've all sinned and broken your law. They're guilty of many sins and worthy of death. But according to your plan, charge it all to my account. Let me die and let them live. Let me be punished for their wrongs and let them go free. And when he was on the cross, the sky grew dark. The rocks split. Jesus suffered and said, it is finished. And that's what we see Paul saying, essentially, in Philemon, verse 19. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. 
This is not an empty promise. He's not saying, Philemon, just whatever he owes you, please just forget about it. Just don't charge it to him. No, he's saying, charge it to me. I will repay it. Christ on the cross said, it is finished, paid in full. The debt was paid. And even beyond this, verse 17, not only are our sins imputed to Christ, but he imputes his righteousness to us. And this is, in essence, what Paul is doing. Look at verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Receive Onesimus. When Onesimus walks back through the gate and walks onto your property and walks through your door, how should he be received? In shame, in humiliation? No, he says, receive him like you'd receive me. I want my identity, my reputation, my worth to be put on him so that when he walks in, it's as if when you see Onesimus, you're seeing the Apostle Paul and you receive him with the same kind of joy and the same kind of love and welcome. That is also a picture of the gospel because not only did Christ take our sins and our wrongs, but he gives us his obedience. He gives us his righteousness. Um, many of you, no doubt, know 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So there's imputing of sin. That we might become the righteousness of man? No, the righteousness of God in him. We don't come to, to God in man's righteousness. We come with the righteousness of the Son of God. Perfect, divi perfect divinity, perfect holiness, perfect righteousness and obedience is imputed to us. He was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. I remember I heard Paul Washer a long time ago say, uh, it's not enough to be forgiven. You have to be righteous. I remember thinking, what is he talking about? Aren't those the same things? Well, no, they're not. What's the difference? The law has two sides. The law has a blessing and the law has a curse. If you sin, you get the curse. If you obey, you get the blessing. It holds out two promises, essentially. One's good and one's terrifying. And it's as if not only did we break the law and Christ takes that, but Christ obeyed the law and he gives that reward of righteousness to us. Gives the blessing to us. Um, you know, it's one thing to say, I paid off all my debts. It's like, well, how much do you have in your bank account? Zero. <laughs> but to, for someone to say, I have millions in the bank. Not only will I pay all your debt, but I'm going to give you millions in your bank account. You see the difference? In the gospel, we have both. And essentially, that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, not only do I not want him to have to pay back anything he might have stolen from you, when he comes back, I want him to come back as this great, 
loved person um, that he's received with so much joy, as if he's lived an honorable life his whole life, as if he's your best friend. Uh, One of my friends, uh, he visited here a while back, Brandon from Canada. When he was converted, he said the time when the gospel became clear to him was someone explained it like you have a little book and it's almost like a diary or a journal with all of your life written in your book. All, and if you're a sinner, all the bad things written in your book. And Christ has a little book of his life and his obedience and his worth and his righteousness. And in the gospel, when, someone comes to, when a sinner comes to Christ, Christ takes their book from them and gives them his. That's what you stand before God with on judgment day the worth of Jesus Christ, the sinlessness and the obedience and the holiness of God's Son. And there's other things in the letter, um, other new things for Onesimus. We don't have time to talk about them, but we could look at how loved he was now, how useful he was now. But let me just jump to the conclusion um, because we're right at the end. What's the conclusion? I think the heart of this letter is a demonstration of the gospel. It's showing the Apostle Paul treating Onesimus the way Christ treated us. So one thing is um, it's a call to us to live out the gospel toward others. Paul was an old man at this point, and he's starting to look very Christ-like. It's amazing that Paul runs into this slave, and he shares with him, and the slave is converted, and that it even enters into his heart and mind. I'm going to pay all his debts, and I'm going to make sure he goes back warmly received. But he's living out the gospel. He's treating others the way Jesus Christ treated him. And so that's a call for us. Um, This is really what God is doing in all of our lives, conforming us to the image of Jesus. That we would love others like we've been loved, that we would sacrifice for them the way Christ sacrificed for us, even the unlovely, even the unworthy, to deal kindly with the lowly and the sinful So it's a beautiful picture in that it reminds us of our salvation and it calls us to embrace that life. Also, I think there's a great encouragement here that we not despair in praying for the lost. Um, This is something I got from Matthew Henry. He says this, What riches are here of divine grace? None are so low, nor mean, nor vile, as utterly to be despaired of. God can meet with them when running from him, can make means effectual at one time and place which have not been so at another. So it was in the instance of Onesimus. Think about it. He served a Christian master and was around this house church and would have been around all these Christians And he was not converted in their midst. 
Was that the end of the story? No. Then he runs away. Maybe he stole some money. We don't know. Was that the end of the story? No. God had plans for him down the road to be saved under the same gospel at a different time. And so we shouldn't despair in praying for the salvation of souls around us. Onesimus is a reminder that the story's not finished. You know, I wonder if anybody in that house church would have thought, he's gone, it's over, we're never going to see him again. And he comes back in their midst with a letter from the Apostle Paul, and he's converted. Even for those that have run from a church or run from a Christian family, the Lord is merciful, and so we can keep praying. And then the last thing is if you haven't made peace with God, if you're not a Christian, come to Jesus Christ, not by works, but by his grace, by his offer of forgiveness and taking your debts. Let your account be switched with his. He will pay your debts and cover you with his righteousness if you trust in him and cling to him as a sinner. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord, uh, to see you more. And Lord, for any of those that maybe are hearing the gospel for the first time and understanding it, that they wouldn't harden their heart, Lord, but that they would trust in Christ today and be saved. Father, we pray. Um, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection. And we pray, Lord, make these things more real in our lives. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the robe of righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.